Hello and welcome to Podcast of Ideas. I'm Alistair Donald, co-convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival and coordinator of the international satellite events that every year form an important part of the festival's aim of promoting worldwide discussion and debate about important political and cultural trends. This podcast is the latest in our series that seeks to explore international perspectives on the corona crisis. Some countries are starting, albeit tentatively, to implement plans for emerging from lockdown, and there's a discussion raging about how to tackle the economic dislocation brought by the crisis, and there's lots of focus on emerging social and political changes and how they impact on each nation. Joining me from Brussels, at the heart of the European Union, is James Holland. James is a writer specialising in European politics, democracy, social psychology and political tribalism, and a communications advisor and formerly senior press officer at the European Parliament. From the Veneto region of Italy, we've got Dominic Standish, who's a lecturer, a commentator in Italian affairs for media outlets around the world, and the author of Venice in Environmental Peril, Myth and Reality. And from Berlin, I'm pleased to welcome Sabina Bettler-Spahl. Sabina is also a regular media commentator. She's chair of the Freiburg Institute, the partner organisation for Battle of Ideas Festival in Germany, and author, from a German perspective, of Brexit, the struggle for democracy in Great Britain. Welcome to you all. Um, it's really nice to be with people from uh, throughout Europe, giving us some insights into what's going on. Uh, I thought I'd just start off by just going round you all and just getting a sense of what's happening in your particular area of the world. So James, if we start with you, you're in Brussels, what's happening? Yeah, hi, Alistair. Hi, everyone. We are, we're, we're starting to see the, the lifting of the lockdown now in, in Belgium. Um, so come next, next Monday, we'll be at, uh, some of the hospitals will start to redo treatments that they put on hold. And then some businesses will start to reopen with strict guidelines about social distancing within their, within their factories and their, their offices. Um, so we're starting to see things uh, going back to normal, but it's very tentative. It's very nervous. There's a lot of caveats added to this. Um, they've ramped up testing. So they, they suspect they're going to see a rise in the number of cases uh, reported, but they're trying to warn people to not panic that that should be expected because of the wider testing. And you, you say that possible sense of panic. It was interesting. I was reading a, an article in the paper just yesterday, I think, which was very much talk. It almost had a sense of paranoia about it, actually, to a much greater extent than I've read anywhere else in, in, in Europe, which was talking about extreme left and right wing groups trying to exploit the pandemic to stir violence and Russian propaganda amplifying far right ideas. I mean, is is that a discussion? Um, I, I, I mean, having been cooped up at home for for weeks and weeks now and watched a lot of things. I think that everyone is taking out of the coronavirus what they want out of it. Um, I think there's a lot of people that, you know, whether, let's say you're a skeptic and you want to criticize the EU. Well, you've got lots of reasons now to criticize the EU. If you believe in the EU and you believe the EU doing more, well, now you've got lots of reasons why uh, it needs to be done now. You know, if you hate Trump, you've seen that his, you know, silly statements have proved that Trump isn't suitable. So I think that people are really taking out of it what, what they already wanted. They kind of, they had their agenda before Corona came and many people are using Corona to push on with what they already believed in, which is, you know, mutualization of debt in Europe, which is to get Boris Johnson out of power, you know. So I, I think I'm seeing a lot of that. That's one of the things I'm taking out. Um, I think coronavirus is going to change, you know, Europe a lot. Um, but I do think that the people are still stuck to what they were already pushing for beforehand. 
uh, rather than having reassessed things because of Corona. Yeah, yeah, that that balance between um, what's been going on before and what's going to come ahead is is one I think we can get onto. But Dominic, if I come to you, uh, Italy obviously been hugely in the news right th- right throughout this process because of uh, this, the impact of the the virus on Italy. Um, you're starting to come out of lockdown now, but it seems very tentative from what I can gather from uh, reading the press here? How is it? Yeah, it's tentative and confused, Alistair. We're going from a situation where you couldn't move more than 200 metres from your house. You know, you weren't even able to go for a long jog or bike ride or anything like that. So um, it has been very, very strict. And that's going to change similarly to Belgium from the 4th of May. So last Sunday evening, Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte did a, a live address to the nation where he outlined the stages as Italy would change. So from the 4th of May, um, a lot of workplaces are reopening and um, some shops, for example, takeaway food will be possible. Um, people will be able to move around within their region to see relatives, but still obligatory to wear masks, gloves, or carry hand gel. And then during the course of this week, there's been various debates about interpreting uh, Conte's speech um, because there were some dark areas. So for example, he said that when people could move around within regions to see relatives, that wasn't strictly defined. Some people interpreted that as you could go and visit a girl or boyfriend, as well as a cousin or an aunt. So that's been very unclear. Um, there's also already on Monday the government have to issue a new protocol for religious gatherings because from the 4th of May there was still no opening up of religious services apart from 15 people being able to attend a funeral. So one of the ironies is you've actually had bishops in revolt uh, to Conte's speech on Monday <laughs> saying, you know, why can't we actually have a constitutional right to worship? And even on Sunday, there was uh, a priest in a small town in northern Italy who held a service and got fined uh, 680 euros by the police. There's been quite a lot of confusion during the course of the week. I won't go into too many other details. The government has been uh, publishing very outlines of how things will change. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I, I did read in Italy that about the, the, the bishop's statement about the churches and, and someone made the point that uh, museums can open up and people can go to museums, but they can't go to the church in, 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 in the same way as a, as a kind of congregate in, in, within the church. So it's quite an interesting contrast. Um, Sabina, if I can come to you. Berlin, uh, obviously in the news this week because having started to open up and a question mark about how successful that has been um, because I, I did read one report uh, last week that even although shops were allowed to open that many businesses weren't actually wanting to open and even the ones that were were facing problems with uh, a lack of people coming in so there's that tension of wanting to open up but not quite getting there um, but also talk uh, we're, we're because uh, in the UK we're fascinated with everything that Germany does talk of PPE shortages in Germany this week 
which has uh, given a certain uh, uh, amount of press coverage. Um, and people talk of people once again being asked to stay home, the prospect of a second lockdown. So how, how, how is it in Germany just now? Well, I mean, it's, um, as you say, it's completely confusing. And I think we have these uh, contradictory tendencies. So we have um, quite a bit of pressure coming from, you know, the economy, for example, saying we need to now ease the lockdown. We need to move quite quickly um, because a lot of people are affected. A lot of businesses will be affected. Um, many businesses, even though there's been very generous state aid, um, say that if hotels, uh, pubs, restaurants, tourist industry, say that if things don't move ahead, if we don't have a, a, a more generous opening, they will have to close down for good. So there's numbers floating around. 70,000 um, members of the hotel and business association said they can't open in the next month. They will have to just close down and that will be it. We have that one side. Then we have the other side, the overcautious side, which is, and I would say, unfortunately represented by the government. Mrs. Merkel just today, as we are speaking, there, are, there is a conference uh, taking place. She's, um, as you might know, quite a conservative politician, always erring on the, on the safe side um, over, or emphasizing risk. So there's that other side, people saying, no way can we uh, uh, stop the lockdown too early. We're going to fall back. We're going to, have, we're going to have a situation when all of what we've done till now was for nothing because they have these magic numbers of the reproduction rate going above one again and you know and, uh, even the calculations are a bit questionable so we have different forms of calculations floating around uh, relating to the reproduction rate and whenever it it reaches the level of one then um, there are calls to close everything down again so it's all it's all very very unsure i think the um, the biggest problems are i'm not sure about the shops i think actually the shops uh, were opened again last week uh, shops up to a uh, surface area of 800 square meters not more so people were questioning that saying why should it be that smaller shops are allowed to open not larger shops mm. where social distancing might be easier so that's that's one area you know yesterday i spoke to someone who works for the comical opera he's the cellist in the comical opera he told me he got a letter saying they might be able to start again in september november or january next year so nobody knows the critical thing is, of course, schools. So that's been a disaster, the school closing in Germany. Maybe from a point of view of a woman, I can say I have a, a number of acquaintances who, who, who just tell me it's often the women then who have to stay at home. They uh, you know, completely strange in our feminist times when we say women should go back to work and now they're forced to stay at home with their children. And it's driving a lot of mothers literally mad. Um, you know, to uh, playgrounds have been closed, so they're not even allowed outside on the playgrounds, open air playgrounds. So there's very little sense to this. The schools are opening again next week, but very, very slowly, very gradually, only a few classes, only for a few hours. And I just read this morning that uh, there will be no normal schooling, at least until the summer holidays. So all of that, you know, we just don't know how it's going to go on. And, and it's always this a culture of fear around, you know, saying, well, we're always scared of a second wave. Germany's never really had a first wave, but, you know, everybody's then talking about the fear of a second wave. Okay, so it's uh, quite a confusing situation, I think, in, in, in all the countries around Europe. It almost, and, and I, I want to uh, pick up with James, um, the question of how the European Union has uh, responded to this crisis as well, because there has been a sense that there's almost been a paralysis, I think, within the European Union. I mean, uh, in, in the UK, 
we've been obsessed by in the last couple of weeks by raking over the decision-making process of who should have acted when uh, in response to the the, the virus and uh, it struck me that the European Union had had not even issued a statement on on the on the crisis until March the 10th which was already when Italy was in lockdown so perhaps a sense of paralysis there which maybe is been reflected in the the very big discussion over the past couple of weeks about how it is that we deal with the economic consequences of, of this uh, virus. So, James, what's what's been going on in terms of uh, the European Union's response to this, especially economically, because there's been this big discussion about bonds and grants and loans. So wh- where are we with that? So the big meeting is next week. Um, the f- the, they had a first meeting uh, in March, which ended very badly. Uh, which saw uh, countries and prime ministers insulting each other, uh, and that was a, a big disaster uh, from the point of view of, of, of EU solidarity during a, a big crisis. Uh, the following meeting that was held uh, in April went much better uh, in that they agreed to invest 540 billion euros into the, uh, into the EU to help, to help the countries suffering the most. Uh, and attached to that was also a tacit agreement to uh, attach to the MFF, so the, um, the seven-year EU budget, so the next one, which will kick in in 2021, to attach to that uh, some sort of, as you say, grant or loan. Um, but all the heads of state only met for four hours. And uh, EU, when you get all the EU heads of state together, it often takes days and days and nights and nights to come to decisions. And these are very, very big decisions. Um, so it was just a kind of, I think, face-saving initiative last the last meeting to show that they can work together and they will find a solution now the big test will come from what is announced uh, at the meeting which is on the 7th of, of may obviously you know the, the countries will be working together behind the scenes to try to come up with with what that will really entail it's going to be difficult there's a big rift between the northern countries you know the kind of austria's the netherlands germany and and spain and france and portugal who are calling for for mutualized debt to get through this. And in terms of the, the pandemic emergency program, they have reached some sort of temporary conclusion on that, as I understand it, and they are going to issue some level of support. But is that is that going to is is that something that you th- feel is going to be enough, that it's going to satisfy the various different factions that you've described? I think there are many challenges ahead. I, I mentioned before that everyone wants to get out of this what they want. So the Commission is proposing to increase the EU's own resources significantly, uh, something it never normally would be able to do. But because of coronavirus and because there's this cliff edge, economic cliff edge ahead uh, of the Union, uh, there is now this momentum behind this idea of boosting the size of the EU's own resources, as they call it, uh, to then be able to borrow much more on the international markets so that funds can be diverted to, to where they're most needed, you know, as the, the, the recession that they say is about to take hold uh, kicks in. I mean, I, I, I do, I don't want to, you know, say that the EU doesn't stand a chance here, but there's, there's a real uphill struggle to find consensus. Um, and I think that probably during these times of crisis, it's not going to be the right time to develop new tools and new instruments, uh, but rather to use the existing structures developed during the Euro crisis um, to, to you know, uh, help the countries in most need now. Okay, and Dominic, if I can come to you, because Italy has obviously been at the forefront of the what are being called the med countries along Spain, France and a few others that's really been pushing for uh, uh, a level of support that doesn't seem to have been 
uh, forthcoming from the EU yet. How, how, how is that situation playing out? Well, I agree very much with James's interpretation of the meeting last week, the leaders of the EU and government leaders, in that there was a form of agreement around words, um, but there's a lot of disagreement underneath, particularly on the question of uh, loans versus grants. So the Italian Prime Minister came back very jubilant and uh, implied that the new recovery fund and the new budget um, would support Italy with um, of a grant. Yes, I think that in the day after that, it became clear that there are a lot of doubts about that. So it was very noticeable how the credit rating agency responded. On Friday, just after the meeting, Standard & Poor's decided not to change its credit rating of Italian debt. And again, the Italians regarded that as positive. And then on Tuesday, uh, Fitch, another credit rating agency, um, downgraded, and they weren't due to uh, review it until July. So that was quite a shock. And the Italian economy minister um, made a statement saying Fitch had made a mistake because they weren't factoring in how much the EU and the ECB, the European Central Bank, would support Italy. But I think probably Fitch are closer to reality uh, than the Italian economy ministry. So there seems to be this kind of belief in the Italian government that somehow various European funds will come in and support the Italian economy um, in terms of huge public, which is the highest percentage in the European Union and also because of the fall of output related to the closure of production um, due to the coronavirus. But I think that belief uh, rests on very flimsy ground. And I think it's much more likely, as James says, that there will be loans made available uh, rather than grants. Of course, it depends on what happens in the other European countries. And does that does that um, then create a, a very real prospect of, of default? I mean, is I mean, this has been mentioned in quite a number of pieces that have been written recently, and I, I find it difficult to uh, assess the extent to which that's a realistic prospect. I mean, is is it a, is it now becoming something that's more expected? Well, I think it largely depends on the actions of the European Central Bank at this moment in time. Uh, the ECB. Bought uh, 30 to 40 billion euros of Italian bonds uh, over the last month, six weeks. Um, so obviously that reduces the possibility of the default. But that can't go on indefinitely um, without additional funding and kind of debt. So at this moment in time, that doesn't look likely. Um, but if the ECB continues to do that, that will obviously postpone some kind of debt restructuring. Obviously, a debt restructure could happen by Italy leaving the EU and the euro, but it could also happen through the management of the ECB. So I think that's an open question. It's very worrying. But I think the problem here is that the Italian government has this presumption that some form of European grant will help, and it doesn't seem likely. I noticed that um, earlier in the week, uh, the Dutch Prime Minister uh, was asked on uh, a Dutch television NOS by a worker, whether veterans would be uh, putting money to help the Italians and the Spanish. And his response was, no, 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 I will remember this. Okay. Um, Sabina, if I, if I come to you, because um, 
uh, with the, the different factions, the coalitions of different countries in the EU, there does seem to be deep divisions. But um, even behind that idea that the EU collectively takes decisions, I mean, we, we you know, everybody knows that some countries exert uh, a lot of influence, and obviously Germany is 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 one of those. And I wanted to um, ask you about the the German position on all, all, all of this because it's been obviously reluctant to sanction a bonds type uh, solution and wants to push it into loans. But is there um, a risk that uh, uh, Germany's vested interest in, in keeping the EU uh, as a, a functioning operation is actually be undermined by the, its own unwillingness to, uh, uh, to go to the, ex- to, to the uh, extent of issuing the correct form of debt relief? So the April meeting was actually greeted with some relief and uh, it was also greeted with relief that Corona bonds were off the table, they said. So the big question now is how will the um, these 500 plus billion euros be granted? Will it, will it be a transfer payment? Will it be a loan? And of course, Germany would prefer a loan. I think the the way they're, I think they're very pleased that they're not alone in this. So Germany is really reluctant to push itself into the forefront. It is obviously in the forefront, but it doesn't like to be seen playing that role. So there is this tendency of, for example, hiding behind the Dutch government at the moment. So it was actually the Dutch government, which was at least in our country presented as pushing forward very hard against the, um, you know, against the transfer um, option saying, you know, Holland won't do this. And, and Germany was quite pleased that, that it wasn't the country to do this. I think the way it works, uh, and I think the government is, is quite aware of that, and a lot of Germans um, should be aware of that, is that Germany, of course, is a country which has massive interests in the EU for many different reasons, mainly, I would argue, political reasons. People always emphasize the economic side, but um, I think the political interests are often underestimated. You know, the entire German establishment is, is pro-EU and sees, uh, sees its own identity, its own self-understanding very much linked to the, uh, to the EU. Um, and there is the thing, well, Germany wants the EU, it's going to have to pay for it. You know, everybody knows that the EU is massively expensive. And the, and the question just remains is, you know, how is this going to pan out in the future? Um, I don't see Germany moving away from that stand yet. I don't think its, uh, it's position is, is being undermined. It, it's, it's, it's going to do everything, everything it can. And I'm talking about, you know, the establishment, the current government to, to uphold the EU. I think they're going to really try and avoid whatever tensions they are there there will be they're going to try obviously to push through their interests they're not they have a massive problem with german taxpayers german taxpayers are not going to be willing to subsidize and fund um, countries uh, like italy people know that this is a very very insecure situation so the government has to tread very carefully it's not only in relation to the other eu countries it's also in relation to their own voters in 2013 the big opposition of the so-called populist parties, the AFD, was founded in opposition to the EU, and the government is very, very aware of that. So it has to be very careful, um, you know, the way it presents the situation, the way it will will go ahead. But um, giving up on the EU, or even, you know, just even leading a discussion on its main problems, which is, you know, the the euro, the the you know, one size fits all framework which is really the problem of the EU and which, which has sort of tied countries down. You know, these are all discussions which are 
really not led uh, very openly and uh, and the government has no interest in, in really leading these debates. And James, these divisions, uh, I, I wondered what the discussion is within within Brussels itself about these because I, I read a, a briefing note from Coots Bank uh, earlier this week, the private banker wealth management, and uh, it was very interesting that it started off with the sentence, it's possible uh, that we're about to see the end of the European Union. So it's kind of quite a stark opening to this 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 briefing note, and there does t- seem to be a sense that on the one hand, um, uh, in the early stages of this crisis, there was a sense among some people within the European Union that this was a a, a situation that the UK, European Union could make something out of. But now there seems to be uh, a discussion amongst Eurosceptics that perhaps this is the demise of the European Union starting. So uh, I, I just wondered where uh, where the discussion is uh, in, in, in Brussels and how that's playing out and how people are responding. Yeah, well, the, the EU's this- Design with mission creep. So you know every every crisis is an opportunity, um, and you want to uh, you know push the, uh, the the federalist agenda, if you like, with every opportunity that you get. Um, uh, there are you know fundamental problems with the way the euro was conceived, uh, in that they you know sought to uh, force countries together probably before they were ready to do it. And I think you know with the euro crisis, we saw um, the first manifestation of those, you know, fundamental problems. And I think we're, we're now just seeing it again. You know, the, the EU and the euro can survive if, if there's convergence. I mean, if there's a kind of equalization of wages and wealth across the, across the, the EU. I read a good paper from the National Bank of Belgium, which, which talks about that whenever there's a crisis, there isn't convergence, there's divergence. Uh, differences are exaggerated. Um, you know, the poorer gets poorer, the rich get richer. And that's not just between countries, but also within countries which, you know, has fueled a lot of the kind of populist revolts that we've seen on the left and the right, the Gilets jaunes in France, uh, Brexit in, in Britain. So uh, I think that that's a real problem. Is the EU addressing it? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think I've, I've heard more uh, fear-laden language uh, in these few, past few months than I have, you know, for, for many, many. Uh, Macron talks about the, the threat that populists pose to the future. Um, and, yeah, and we're hearing similar noises in other countries. They can see that this is a big test. I just worry that they don't actually have the, the tools uh, at hand, um, given the, the, the structural flaws of the, of the way the euro was designed. Um, but I mean, they're, they're, they're taking it very seriously and then they're obviously trying to find a solution. But uh, uh, the idea that big is better and big helps you to survive crises doesn't always prove to be true and often small and nimble and flexible uh, or decentralized, as I think we've actually seen with some of the, the way decentralized healthcare systems have managed the, the, the crisis better than heavy centralized top-down systems. You know, it's almost as if, you know, every country having its own currency would have been a better way of dealing with this. But that not, that's not the decision that was taken. That's not the route that was taken. And now there are serious challenges ahead. Have you subscribed to the Academy of Ideas newsletter yet? It's the best way to stay up to date with the work we're continuing to do during these strange times. Hear from our director, Claire Fox, stay informed about what events we're planning for the autumn in 2021, and most crucially, keep up to speed with the numerous Zoom book clubs, salon meetings, and lectures we plan to release in the coming weeks and months. Follow the link at the bottom of this podcast to sign up.
Yeah, um, Dominic, if I can come to you, because it's quite interesting, James mentions Macron there, who obviously talks a very good European game, but it's been very noticeable at, uh, during this crisis, the way that uh, he has uh, at times retreated into a very much a France first uh, uh, position, whether that's being securing medical supplies and protective equipment just for France, or or really trying to push decisions that are very much in France's is national interest. And I wondered, uh, in Italy, obviously there's been uh, the the rise of the League over the past uh, a couple of years, and they've been in government. Uh, there's been a sense, an underlying sense in Italy, that there's a, a building opposition to the European Union, but always a reticence to push it through. And I wonder the extent to which that situation is is starting to change now. Some of the poll figures that I've I've seen recently suggest quite a rise of anti-EU feeling and sentiment. Yeah, there's a slight difference here, though, because although you're right, Alistair, that in the polls um, there's quite a big shift by about 20% in decline uh, in Italians uh, looking favourably upon the EU and in the institutions. At the same time, the League, who in the past dragged up its kind of uh, anti-EU uh, credentials, has also witnessed a decline in the polls over the last month by about 5%. So it's interesting that in the past, um, if we look back to the 2018 Italian general election, before that election, the League had a position of leaving the Euro, but not the EU. Um, after the election, it dropped that pledge. Now, you might think that in the current context with growing anti-EU sentiments that the League and its leader, Matteo Salvini, would sense there's an opportunity here to return to a more anti-Euro or anti-EU agenda. So far, that has not been the case, and he's been emphasising challenging the lockdown and economic reconstruction. But if he gets squeezed further, that might change too. I wouldn't bank on it. And as it happens, there are some political fledgling movements, one called Reconquer Italy, which is directly saying, let's leave the EU. Um, but at the moment, they're very, very small. And so things could shift. And I think also as poverty increases a lot, we're seeing a lot more uh, protests and reactions on Tuesday evening in a beach town near Venice. There were people out uh, protesting against the lockdown measures. Uh, people in the tourism sector have been hit very, very hard. Um, we're seeing incredible poverty in parts of the South and uh, in particular where you've got the police at supermarkets because people have been walking out with food without paying. So as these kind of problems mount, if people like Salvini look to develop a more anti-EU sentiment, uh, I think that will be a game changer. And I, I just wanted to pick up on 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 that uh, the regional differences, Dominic, in 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 Italy, because um, even it's striking that you say that the league has lost a bit of support over over the past few weeks. And one of the things I've noticed is that uh, Lombardy, where uh, the crisis hit particularly badly and they didn't deal with it well, the league seems to have uh, you know dipped quite a lot in support. Whereas Veneto, where which um, 
seems to have dealt with it a little bit better, which is also a league area, has picked up in a bit of support. So I, I suppose the, the, the instinct is to think, well, if, if anti-EU sentiment rises, then it's the nation state that's going to benefit. But I wonder, in Italy, is it a kind of regional differentiation that's starting to emerge now? Because also, as you mentioned in the South, there's a, you know, vast economic problems, particularly with the fact that most a lot of people who work don't seem to be registered, presumably haven't been benefiting from from the, the state support. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Italy is renowned for being highly regionalised, whether that's economically or politically, and undoubtedly that's the case. I mean, I would say that the way the League has managed the health crisis in Lombardy undoubtedly affected their national polling as well. But on the other hand, the League's governor in the Veneto region where I live, uh, Luca Zaya, a poll this week showed that he's actually the most popular political figure in the whole of Italy um, now, even more than Conte or Salvini. Now, I won't go into the ins and outs of that, but undoubtedly we're going to see more regional disparities when you have people like the governor of Calabria suddenly changing the rules to suit uh, that particular area. Um, the government today has actually said it's going to issue a legal restriction on Calabria to prevent them doing that. So I think you are going to see uh, greater regional disparities, uh, both at a political and an economic level. Okay, and Sabina, I, I think Germany also... Um regional disparities are, are, are apparent to some extent. Um, I wonder uh, to what extent you think they're going to have an, uh, have an impact, both in terms of the response to the virus itself, but also in terms of the economic future. And I, I, I suppose the question that always um, comes to mind with Germany just now is with uh, Merkel uh, on seemingly on her way out, um, has this uh, crisis been uh, uh, something that's boosted her status a little bit? Uh, is it even considered that she won't go at the end of next year or is it, you know how, how, how do you see German domestic politics playing out yeah so I've heard the same thing so I even have some friends who are saying they're they're now waging bets saying you know next year Merkel is going to candidate again because she's going to say there's nobody else uh, you know I don't really want to be Chancellor forever but who can do this job now we've got a crisis again so it's going to have to be me unfortunately I don't know I, I hope I, I I don't know if that's going to happen. I think there's still a lot of you know, time till next year. So we've got the elections next year in autumn, scheduled for next year in autumn. Many things can still happen. Um, at the moment, it seems that Merkel's um, popularity has uh, boosted again through the crisis. People say she's, uh, you know, absolutely popularity ratings are very, very high. I think we have to take these with a pinch of salt. I've seen so many popularity ratings in Germany now, even of opposition candidates, which have turned out to be, you know, wrong and nonsense in the in the elections. So we've had the Greens uh, being, to we were told the Greens were the most popular politicians who would then win elections and they didn't. And I think the same will go, um, I, 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 I at least can, will could be the case with Merkel too. She, ha she wasn't popular before the corona crisis anymore. She was not even present in everyday politics. People were sort of saying, well, where is she? You know, she pretty much retreated. She's back in now. We have the the only, um, you know, thing to go on uh, with her popularity ratings is, is just, um, you know, polls. And we know that polls are, you know, very, very unreliable, particularly at this time when people are isolated, atomized, often unsure, a bit scared. 
So, um, you know, uh, the, you know, just posing a question in a different way might make huge differences. Um, if somebody asked me, do you do you think the government has done a good job till now? I don't know what I would say, but do you think that they've made big mistakes? I would probably also say no if I was a normal citizen. You know, things are going relatively well compared to other countries. Does that mean I'm happy with the, with the government? No. So, it, you know, we, we don't know. And, and the other thing is we don't know how things will develop in the next months, you know. Germany has avoided massive infections, it seems. But if we do open the economy, you know, the virus isn't going to disappear. Uh, what's going to happen? What will happen if the 70,000 companies um, I just talked about will close? What will happen to the over 7 million people who are employed in what we call mini jobs, who might be losing their jobs, who have no unemployment benefit, um, who will, who are not liable to short-term work? Uh, as you mentioned, the uh, divisions within the country are massive. We're always talking about one Germany. We don't really have one Germany. We have huge cleavage, cleavages. Yeah. We have very, very poor areas. So we have, you know, a difference in disposable income between the richest part of Germany, which is twice as high. So 36,000 euros is what people earn on average per year per capita. And in the poorer areas, we have 16,000. And these are quite big areas, the areas of the former East, uh, the areas of the former industrial uh, West. You know, all this is going to... Uh, you know, it's, it's going to have to pan out somehow and we don't know what's going to happen. And just in terms of uh, the response then to some of these things, because I, I saw that you wrote an article a couple of weeks ago where you said that there's been a certain amount of clamping down on, on protests within areas of Germany. And uh, speaking to someone last week, they were um, remarking about how... Uh, easily it is now to push through new measures with the emergency powers that's been brought in in Germany. Kind of where do we stand in terms of civil liberties? Is this is this now becoming a major problem? Well, I, I just noticed today that I see fewer police on the streets, so it seems to be easing a bit. So when the lockdown started, it was awful because, you know, there were police all over and they were really threatening, you know, a real threat. Um, but I just read that there is this uh, demonstrations which has been going on every Saturday now in Berlin, um, organized by a, 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 you know, a bit of a, a strange group, I would say, but they've attracted hundreds and hundreds of people and each week the demonstration gets bigger. So this Saturday there were over 400 people despite it being an illegal demonstration, despite massive police presence. Again, there were over 100 people arrested. Um, so there seems to be a real discontentment, you know, with what's happening. And there have been um, initiatives uh, which have questioned the um, complete clampdown on civil rights. Everybody knows that what's happening at the moment has no legal basis to it. So there's no law which actually justifies what's what's been happening in Germany. A number of uh, uh, jurists who have been criticizing the way this has been handled. We've, we've had areas of Germany factually locked down for uh, for other Germans, so people who have holiday houses, properties, boats, even just caravans, you know, in, 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 the, in the northern uh, uh, region, were not allowed to, to, to even go anywhere near their property. All these questions are open, and I think uh, there will be um, resistance to it. We've also had churches, by the way, who have sued the government for not being allowed to host uh, service to, uh, services. Um, which is also an interesting development, saying this goes against our right uh, for rigid religious freedom. Churches will be opened again now next week under strict regulations. So there is resistance, definitely. People, uh, you know, there is a sense of 
something has to happen. Okay, thanks, Sabina. So um, we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to go around quickly and, and see what's on the horizon uh, over the next few days and weeks ahead. James, what, what, what are you looking out for that's coming up? The start of the lockdown uh, in Belgium, where I live, um, and Brussels more specifically, uh, obviously that's going to be uh, very interesting to follow, to see if it works and see how people react uh, I was saying before to Dominic that there's a lot of people out already on the streets and has been for a few weeks now. I mean, some Saturday afternoons, it doesn't look so different than a normal Saturday afternoon, apart from the fact that all the shops are shut. So I'm interested to see how, how the country reacts to that. Um, the other big thing is, of course, you know, what, what the, uh, the Euro um, meeting on the 7th of, of, of May uh, comes up with. I think that will hopefully a uh, big uh, relief to many of the countries that are, are suffering the most and who have... Um, you know, the, the, the toughest time ahead. Um, and especially, I mean, one of the issues that was discussed uh, yesterday in, in Brussels was tourism. Um, you know, we, we say that I think 10% of the EU economy is based on tourism. Lots of the countries are famous around the world for being tourist destinations. Um, and so trying to come up with some sort of transport corridors to allow people to go to these places to keep the little fishing villages and hotels and, and et cetera, et cetera, uh, so that they don't all shut down is is, is also a priority. Um, and again, that's, you know, we say 10% across the EU, but you know, if you look at certain areas in Spain or Italy or the South of France, actually tourism is everything. Uh, and it gets closer to, you know, 50% of the economy locally. Um, so if those tourists don't all come this summer, um, we will see uh, we will see a lot of uh, a lot of economic hurt uh, hurt okay and dominic presumably tourism is a massive issue you just talked about uh, what's happening in venice recently but what what's coming up uh, for you in terms of uh, what's going on in italy well like james the focus i think is on uh, how things will start to open up next week and the reactions to that i mean the reactions i think are pretty mixed i mean there are of course people who say well there are still few hundred people dying per day should we be opening up at all but I think those people are in a minority on the other hand there are people who are saying there should be no lockdown uh, but I think they're probably in a minority as well most people I speak to seem to think that there should be more of an opening gradual opening up um, but I think the other thing that most people sense now is that they don't really trust the government on their logic this. So, in fact, uh, the Prime Minister has done a speech this morning defending his phases of opening up, saying it's all based on science. Well, you know, ordinary people are looking at it and saying, why is it that bookshops opened two weeks ago? Uh, museums are going to be opening on the 18th of May, um, and some other shops won't be able to open until after that. Uh, things like barbers and beauty parlours. 1st of June, and no schools until September. So to argue that this is based on science, you know, why can a bookshop be open, but a shop that sells lighting can't be? Um, so I think gradually we're going to see more dissatisfaction growing with the government, and especially its uh, committee of scientific advisors, because ordinary people can see this isn't based on science at all. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I, I, I didn't realise until earlier this week that uh, uh, in Italy, social distancing is one metre compared to two metres in, in Britain. So kind of different uh, interpretations of science seem very evident in, in different European countries. Sabina, if I come to you finally, um, what's uh, uh, what's on the horizon for you? Well, I think the government is going to 
come up with some suggestions. Um, as I said today, I think one thing they are going to pursue is probably a stronger digitization. So this kind of follow up through uh, mobile phones, uh, you know, the way uh, South Korea had been doing this, people who were infected and need to stay at home and need to trace everybody who's been in touch with them. That's quite disputed, but I, I think that's that's the most likely case. That's what they say will happen in autumn. That's how they will go forward. Um, because they know that um, closing down the economy too much or lock, locking down the soci society is, is really going to um, really, you know, get the country into deep trouble. Um, there have been other methods. So since yesterday, um, we all have to wear face masks when we go to shops. Um, again, something which was going back and forth. So Tuesday evening, the Berlin government still said they wouldn't. Uh, make face masks compulsory. Yesterday I nipped into the shop and I was thrown out because I didn't have my face mask nor a scarf. Unfortunately, I'd forgotten it and I was immediately somebody calling the shop assistant saying, oh, lady without a face mask. So all these things are going <laughs> to continue to happen. I think we're going to have a lot of panic. We're going to have this kind of, you know, social distancing is going to be written large despite the easing. So that's what I'm worried about. We're going to have an opening trying to make the economy work again, but at the same time, you know, um, keeping people separate as much as they can, um, you know, through face masks, through keeping the two meter distance or one meter 50 distance rule, you know, social gatherings will be forbidden, um, bigger, bigger cultural meetings will probably not happen till December. So all these things which are not seen as absolutely necessary, but which are necessary to keep public life going, you know, to keep a public discussion going. All these things I fear will not be happening in the next half year. And I think that would be quite detrimental to, to our society, you know, to the way debates are going. Um, so I don't know. Um, I'm not, I'm, I, I think it's going to be, I think we're going to, it's going to be hard and we're going to, um, you know, really have to fight against this mood of social distancing. I think that's what I see as the main problem at the moment. James, Dominic, Sabina, it's been uh, fantastically interesting speaking to you. Um, so much going on and so many brilliant insights. I, I really hope that we can come back and uh, pick up the conversation in, in, in somewhere down the line and find out how things have gone. I hope those insights proved useful for helping understand how different institutions and nations are responding to coronavirus. We'll be back soon with more Corona conversations from around the UK and around the world. At Academy of Ideas, we are still working, producing a number of online events every week. To find out how you join us for our Zoom-hosted forums, salons or book clubs, please visit www.academyofideas.org.uk. All our online events are free to join, but if you can make a donation to help support our work, and that can be small or large, then please do hit the donate button on the website. Whatever you can give us will be hugely appreciated and will be a means of helping us and you continue to shape the debate. <laughs>